I'm going to figure out a way to fold this into my life story, knowing that this is part of my life story, but I'm not going to let it define my entire life. Greetings, listeners. Uh, I forgot what this podcast is called. What's this podcast called? Um, I think it's called The Feminist Present. That sounds familiar. And what's our tagline? We use the gift of feminism to yada, yada, yada. Okay, perfect. Fantastic. Everything's going great. I'm Laura Good. I'm I'm, I'm loopy. <laughs> Who are you again? <laughs> And everything's going great. Everything is fine in higher education. All the teachers are glad to be in the virtual classroom. All the students have no additional pressures on them. Everything is totally normal and fine, right? Yeah, we're like that dog in that cartoon. And we're like, I don't, I forget what the dog in the cartoon says. Yeah, I'm totally lost. (laughs) I'm holding a coffee mug and they're flames. I don't know what I'm saying. I mean, right before we got on the mic, Adrian and I were talking about, you know, teaching this quarter and it being this strange mix of like, being really glad for some measure of normalcy of seeing students again and like talking about literature again. And then like, I know when I got up this morning, it was just like, why are we doing this? Like, This is a farce. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the same goes for the podcast too, right? That we're entering into a period where longtime listeners of this show, you know who you are and you don't exist. Way back to April, 2020. (laughs) Yeah. Because we've been around for like Five months. Anyway. What is time? But we have mentioned before that we record this a little bit in advance, which has mattered more some months than it has others, right? Time being a flat circle in 2020 and all. It's going to matter a fuck ton in the the next couple of weeks. So we're recording this before the election. Really important. Yes. It's an interview with a former member of Congress. It is an election-relevant interview. So that's the first thing we should say. And this is only going to get weirder from here on out. Yes. (laughs) Civilization as we know it may have fully fallen by the time, and we're like, so bread making, how, how's that, you know? Oh my God, it's so hard. I'm glad you're making this process note. I told Adrian as we endeavored upon this project together that I did not want to be in the business of breaking news because I know too much about film and news production to know how little those people sleep. And it's a tough form to pull off with like a long form interview podcast. So yes, we made the decision early on that there would be a several week delay between when we record and release episodes and man has that been a tough gap to close in 2020 (laughs) and we should say that part of the reason why we did it is you know we have two lovely producers two amazing producers megan and isabella who both have other jobs and are operating out of what appears to be like a bedroom in a house somewhere so they're not you know working with like this massively advanced studio equipment so yeah if we wanted to break news i think it would mean just like forcing them to pull all-nighters on top of the jobs they already have and just like this is not an aaron sorkin operation This is not how we do things. Anyway, so if you ever listen to this podcast and you're like, where have these people been? Do they not know what's going on? We do know what's going on all too painfully well. And um, we're just doing our best to keep up here. Anyway, Adrian, who are we talking to today? Well, I kind of already alluded to it. We're talking to a former member of Congress, former representative Katie Hill from California. She is a fascinating and brilliant woman who has had one of the hardest years on record. And like, that's really saying something in 2020. Yeah. For people who are not from California, she's from the greater LA area, I guess. Santa Clarita does kind of qualify. She represented the 25th congressional district, which was one of those that 
For those of you who are not from California, there's a bunch of Republican seats that got flipped pretty late in the game in 2018. This is one of them. It covers mostly Simi Valley and San Fernando Valley. Well, and I think this is an important point because I think in the popular imagination, many people think of California as a singularly blue state, and it is very much not. There is quite a bit of California that is neither San Francisco nor Los Angeles, and much of it is very red. So it was quite notable when Katie Hill flipped the seat, as Adrian was noting. Uh, so it's like Lancaster Palmdale for people who are mm-hmm. road trip enthusiasts uh, mm-hmm. at the mm-hmm. end of the 25th. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so this was a big deal. And unfortunately, her term was quite short. Yeah, I'm quoting from an August New York Times profile here. So I could quote from a fact check source because there has been a lot of misinformation that has swirled around this brilliant woman. Okay, so I'm reading from that New York Times profile. And it says about Katie Hill, once considered a rising Democratic star, a favorite of the Speaker of the House, Nancy. Pelosi, Ms. Hill made headlines in 2018 when she flipped a Republican district blue. She was one of very few openly bisexual elected candidates. But her term ended almost as quickly as it has started, after photos of Katie Hill naked, in one she was holding a bong, in another she was brushing a woman's hair, were published by the conservative website Red State and later by the Daily Mail. Ms. Hill believes the photos were leaked by her estranged husband, who she said was abusive and who had threatened to ruin her if she left him, which she had five months before the leak. He has denied releasing the photos, saying his computer was hacked. But the source of the leak was for a moment overshadowed by what the pictures revealed, that Ms. Hill and her husband had been having a relationship with a young member of her campaign staff, a subordinate. The relationship, which Katie Hill acknowledged, did not violate House rules, updated amid the Me Too movement because it happened during the campaign, not after Ms. Hill was elected. But Red State reported that Ms. Hill had also had a relationship with her legislative director, which would have. Both she and the legislative director have denied this. An ethics investigation was opened into her conduct. That ethics investigation was never complete because Katie Hill decided to step down voluntarily. And in doing so, she did acknowledge that she was resigning, at least in part because of a double standard. And Adrian and I, being the particular nerds we are, were far more interested in investigating that double standard than we were in most everything else. We believe Katie when she says that these photos were leaked without her consent. We believe her when she says that some of them were taken without her consent. We believe her when she says her husband was abusive, and we know from a ton of research in the field that in a lot of ways, as comes up in the interview, her story hews very closely to what experts understand about domestic violence narratives, which is that one of the most dangerous times in an abusive relationship is when the abuse party tries to leave, and that was exactly when everything fell apart for Katie Hill. I've been talking for a long time about the misfortunes that have befallen Katie Hill, and I wish I were done, but two more that are worth mentioning were, as all of this was going down, her mother was diagnosed with a brain tumor and her younger brother died very suddenly of an overdose. So Katie Hill has had one of the hardest years on record. It's amazing that she's still standing. It's absolutely incredible that she's still taking podcast interviews. And I was just really moved by our conversation with her. You'll notice we'll talk in the beginning about the choice to reflect on that year, basically as it was still in process. The resignation was, I believe, November 3rd, 2019. Mm-hmm. So she decided to reflect on this essentially as it was happening and didn't sort of do the stay out of the public eye for a couple of years and then c- come back with a reflection. And I think that's sort of the spirit of the interview, that this is someone who's still very much in the middle of what she wants to talk about. This interview is about a month old by now. This was also in the middle of the incredible forest fires that we've been having Mm -hmm. the entire West Coast, California, as well as the Pacific Northwest. So we talk about that a little bit, about how at the end of this supremely worst possible year, Katie Hill decided to 
make a tour of West Coast national parks just as they were all catching fire mm -hmm. and choking us all with their smoke. That is the deeply metaphorical wasteland. She sounded remarkably chipper considering. Yeah. <laughs> she sounded like she was enjoying her trip anyway. You couldn't make this up. Or, or as a metaphor, you'd underline this in a short story. It'd be like not believable. Contrived. <laughs> so contrived. I should correct myself slightly so we are not accused of inaccuracy. I do not know that her mother had a brain tumor. I know that her mother needed to have urgent brain surgery. So please don't come at me. All right for these for these corrections. And so we should also mention that Katie wrote a book that we read and are talking about. She will yeah. rise, which is sort of half memoir, half manifesto and is in very much in keeping with a sort of nascent theme of books by authors in the feminist present season two, in that it blends research and autobiography yeah. and sort of runs Katie's family story parallel with America's family story. It also includes some really juicy detours into say queer reimaginings of relationships between famous historical feminists so we're really into that we were putty in the hands of that obviously what do you think adrian should we take it take it to the bridge of katie hill let's do it this is our first musical free episode but i am fine with that well, now that you said that i just want to sing but i'm gonna hold myself back yes we will take it to katie hill and let her sing the arias today <laughs> Okay, Katie, we're definitely going to get to your queer reimagining of Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Katie. Like, believe me, we're going to get to that. But before we get there, tell us about your road trip to Washington State. <laughs> so I guess to back up for a minute, I have not really taken any time off since everything happened. I mean, you know, obviously, it's clear in the book. I resigned at the end of October. I briefly recovered from that trauma, but not for very long before I ended up getting this book deal. Then my brother died and then I had to write the book very quickly. And then I started her time and getting the book out and everything like that. So basically it's been almost pushing a year now of kind of not ever stopping and really taking a chance to try and personally heal and reflect. And so I decided to take a solo road trip after the book launched, like, and I did the initial kind of wave of press. That road trip, however, has consisted of me going through California, Oregon, Washington, oh my gosh. <laughs> during all the fires. Oh I have a very weird view of Seattle that is not, not what you would normally see, I think. It looks like very dense fog, but it's actually just very dense smoke. Hopefully, as I head east, then it'll clear up a little bit. I'm going to go whale watching tomorrow. And it's just a funny thing. I've never, I've never traveled like recreationally by myself before, and I feel like I'm learning a lot. I definitely got the impression from your book as someone who, you know, like graduated high school early and then like launched right into a career. Like, have you historically been someone who's taken a lot of time for herself? Oh, yeah, I've never, never. Yeah, okay. Not at all. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, like, no. I don't, don't want to like make any assumptions, but like you give us some evidence. Yeah. Yeah. So like, what have you learned about yourself as you have given yourself like a minute to think? Yeah, I've learned that I actually like it. I like being by myself. I've really been nerding out too. So I've been going to the national parks when it's like totally empty and it's just me and a bunch of smoke and, and like I just like read all of the plaques I downloaded the audio tours of the national parks and I had these like epic epiphanies oh, yeah. about how 
Okay, so this is a weird one, but I was at Crater Lake National Park and it's a volcano that erupted almost 8,000 years ago. And the smoke from all the different sides of it, it's like a big old crater. It's the deepest lake in the United States and it's from a collapsed volcano. And so now you're seeing the fire that's caused by global warming in all of these different places. And it was just a moment where I was like, the earth doesn't care. Like the earth is going to move on no matter what. We're not really talking about killing the earth. It's going to it's going to just right. go right over us. We're going to end up being specks on this little timeline that is, you know, the history of this planet. Some people, when I say that, they say it sounds depressing, but I'm like, I don't know. I feel like there's something reassuring about it. Yeah. yeah. At least we'll have tidied up after ourselves or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. How are the parks? Like, what do the park rangers think? Are you by yourself or are there other people? Oh, there are other people. Not that many, which makes it nice because a lot of times they're super crowded. It's a pretty specific thing to be like, oh, wow, the AQI pit 500. I must go to Crater Lake. Time um, for a hike. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I just, <laughs> I was just like, I'm. I'm not going to get to do it again, I don't think, right. anytime soon. So I'm going to do it anyway. I also got a, I got like one of those little park passports and I'm going to make a collage when I get home. I'm really just leaning into this. It's a very nerdy thing for me. And it feels like the most authentic way to experience 2020, right? If you like went to Hawaii away from it all, I'd be like, eh, that's kind of ducking what this moment's about. But like contemplating yeah, no. exploding volcanoes oh while covered <laughs> right. in, in smoke, like you're leaning <laughs> into the year, right. I'd say. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Okay. So let's let's get to what our listeners really need to hear. Katie, tell us how you learned or why you believe that Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Katie Stanton were, let us just say, more than friends. Well, I, I was just doing the research around this and, you know. Susan B. Anthony was never married, never apparently had any interest in men whatsoever. And she had a room in Elizabeth Cady Stanton's house every single time. Very rich detail. Yeah, this is very, you know, well documented. Their letters back and forth to each other are, I don't know, they seemed more than platonic to me. Again, I'm probably just like overly enthusiastic about this. But <laughs> then these things that her husband would say about it, I just like, I just, as soon as I was reading some of this stuff, I was like, oh, you 100% were lovers and if you weren't then like you definitely wanted to be so right that was my conclusion and i don't know if i'm right or not but i'm just gonna pretend i am we're gonna stick with it that's always the saddest thing when like looking at historical records of these kind of friendships where you're yeah, like right god i hope you were having sex because like if not I like know, if it was just like yearning and then you're like oh i've wasted my life it's like oh that's so sad that's what i think but too. That's i just I think, think they too. were very careful about what they committed to writing there was probably you know exactly. they, they had a exactly. very very good separation well and if that is the theory then it would fully track with that theory that it was the husband who was right. less careful with the writing because katie i believe it's the husband that you're quoting in your book when he writes how liz's husband once said quote susan stirred the puddings elizabeth <laughs> stirred up susan and then susan know, stirs right? up the world <laughs> like that is not a man who's no, being careful no. with his language and in a way his carelessness no. is very telling in terms of what he was perceiving or anything you know and you know what who knows what his little situation was indeed yeah, yeah. indeed we are always here for oh. queer queer reimaginings <laughs> of feminist history 100 percent. even though we're talking about the book now I, I was really amazed by the kind of timeline behind it i wanted to ask whether that was kind of deliberate that you really you're saying you have time to reflect now and you're touring the smoke filled wilds that were once the pacific northwest but um was it important for you to write this book sort of before you'd had time to slow down is this kind mm. of a write a, a debrief that you felt you needed to do while yeah. you hadn't fully separated yet yeah honestly i felt like it was part of how i needed to process it if that makes sense mm -hmm. you know you can sit and i yeah. did sit through hours of therapy still am sitting through hours of therapy to really just sit down and try and write it 
out. Kind of figuring out the meaning of it all is the part that that I think I would have needed to do whether or not it was going to be published and whether or not I was going to get paid for it. Right. At the same time, I'm not going to lie. I needed to have a source of income. Right. Like I very suddenly lost my job and it's not like I had anything set aside. When you're running for Congress, you've spent everything. I was, you know, in the middle of this divorce and I was like, well, uh, I got to get a paycheck pretty quickly here. And so when the opportunity arose that maybe writing a book was a good way to make that happen, then I was like, I'm going to be writing this stuff. I feel like I need to really figure this out and figure out my place and my next steps in the world. And this is how I'm going to do it. And I'm happy with it. I think I, I learned a lot from the process. It's a launching point for, you know, future things. And maybe I'll write another one, but I, at least I have the foundation for her time and the organization that we've started from it and kind of the operating principles behind it. And all of that is because of the internal processes that I went through in writing the book. That actually gets to something that I wanted to ask you, which is like nerd alert. I definitely picked up as I was reading that you were an undergraduate English major. And that made me want to know, is writing a book something that you had aspired to before this particular moment and opportunity? Yeah. So my grandfather, the one I talk about in the book, the poli sci professor. Yeah. Yeah. He had actually, when he retired as a professor, he had written a young adult novel that from the time that I was in probably seventh or eighth grade, I was editing for him and he never got it published. He never really even, I think, sent it out to agents or anything like that. But going through that process with him, I always thought, yeah, maybe one day that'd be kind of cool to come up with my own idea. I didn't actually foresee it being nonfiction, to be honest with you. I figured if I did write Mm. a book, I would want it to be fiction. And so I guess that's, Mm -hmm. that's something that I would want to still do maybe is um, try to, Mm -hmm. you know, tap into the creative energy that I haven't done a whole lot of creative I guess it's creative in its own way, right? But flat out fiction is not something that I've ever really done much of. For sure. Well, I identify with the creative impulse you were just naming. And I also identify with the survivor impulse you were just naming. And I think one thing that came through to me really poignantly and really powerfully through your book is, and I say this as someone who's a trauma survivor myself, like how important it is for someone who's coming back from abuse to go through a process of learning to believe herself again and how a really crucial part of that process can be just trying to tell the story right like and just just telling the story in a way that you believe yourself I think can be harder than many people even imagine so I'd love to hear you talk a little about how that process of writing was for you and believing yourself no I think you're absolutely right and it's also it's also very different from when you're talking about totally. it, you're, you know, having to process it out loud with your closest friends or family or your mm-hmm. therapist or, you know, anyone, than if you are able to truly sit with it and replay it over and over and, and say, you know, is this truly how I experienced it? Or is this the narrative that I've been telling myself right. is how it right. happened? And how do you kind of go backwards and look at things in your past that you've kind of blown off as being one thing when, as you're kind of experiencing everything in a different light, you realize are not the same. They aren't what you thought they were. And I thought about that a lot Mm -hmm. and just how shaky your confidence becomes of like, what was real? You know, what of my relationship was real? What of my experiences in life were real? I think that's been one of the biggest things that I've struggled with, especially with the divorce and especially with, you know, the fact that I've been with this guy since I was Mm -hmm. 16 years old. Mm -hmm. Even now I'm 33 years old. I was with him for my entire adult life. I go backwards and think about, okay, is everything, and I know that this isn't the case, especially intellectually, I know this, but like, is everything that I experienced kind of invalidated, especially the good things? Does it mean because I was with him or because I don't know, it almost feels like I have to do a redo or a do over on a lot of this stuff, even like the national parks. That's one of the reasons that I'm doing it again on my own, just because that's something that we did 
together and that I did with my brother. And I wanted to be like, is this something that I actually enjoyed or did I do it just because Hmm. it was a thing that we basically, I'm like, it didn't count before. So I need to do it on my own now to make sure that Mm -hmm. it's really my own experience. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And it's cool to hear like that you're finding joy, at least in this trip and discovering that it is something that you like on your own. And there is stuff for you there without anybody else bolstering that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just kind of thinking about how it is to decompress from a part of one's life and having to reassess it. Would you say that writing the book has brought together, I'm sure that for someone who was in the public eye as much as you have been, there are two versions of that and not because of any kind of pretense, but just because there are things you keep private and there are things that you don't. Did the book allow you to sort of bring these two things together or did it help you sort of articulate what is the public facing part of this process and what just isn't? Well, I think truly I just bared my soul in the book. One of the freeing things about literally being exposed, being naked for the world to see is that you really don't have much that you need to hold back anymore. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you know, when I decided I would talk about my near suicide, I did that very quickly after it happened because I felt like it was something that so many people come close to, especially survivors or victims of cyber exploitation. And that isn't talked about enough. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like it was important for me to share my experience. And so once you've done that, it's like, I might as well just be completely open at this point. And knowing that I'm not held back by, Oh, I might run for Mm -hmm. office again, all my Mm -hmm. stuff is out there. Like literally, hopefully people find value in my honesty and being able to relate to things that a lot of public figures never discuss. So as Adrian and I are people who work, you know, in the academic field of gender studies, we get pretty deep on the language. And I was really interested, I would love to hear in your words, the exception that you take with the term revenge porn and the verbiage you would prefer instead. So two things. I think when you break it down, revenge, to me, exact revenge on somebody who's committed a wrong, right? Right. Has done a crime, has done something, something that warrants revenge. And in the case of, you know, men who do this to women, they're exacting revenge for usually for being dumped, right? And that's not okay. That's not something that deserves revenge. That's just them being horrible, awful people. So that's one part. The second part is porn. Porn is a form of entertainment. And, you know, if it's done consensually, then it's fine, right? And most Americans have enjoyed porn in some way. But cyber exploitation isn't something that should should be enjoyed at all, should not be marketed as such. If somebody's consuming it in that way, then like they're as guilty as the perpetrator in terms of perpetuating this. And and so I want to take that. And this isn't coming from me. You know, I didn't start this movement of calling it cyber exploitation. I actually learned about it in kind of my own period of growth. But mm-hmm. it, I don't think that we should even remotely conflate something that is literally ripping away a person's ability to consent with something that is, you know, sex workers are able mm-hmm. to participate right. in. Yeah. And many of them are also, you know, taxpaying, hardworking yeah, Americans exactly. who don't deserve to be insulted or misnamed. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I guess there's also the fact that it kind of extends a form of control. Yeah. While sort of suggesting that it is a product, right? Like yep. that makes it so... Yep. It's the same way that like, you know, around Me Too, there was all these sort of rhetorical tropes around like, well, she's just doing this for the exposure. It's like, who would want that exposure, right? It's like such a weird kind of- Show me one example. Yeah, of like someone who's like, oh, this seems like an enjoyable thing to commit my year to, right? Like this kind of turning men's control over women into, well, actually maybe she's doing something. And I I fully agree that like the, especially the porn part of it is really dangerous what it suggests. Yeah, yeah. And I think especially with ones that are taken like selfies or that were sent at some point in a consensual way, right. I think that's one of the ways that people, they try to villainize the woman 
in you know a yeah. bigger way, being like, oh, she shouldn't have taken it and sent it. And it's like, no, mm-hmm. shut up. That's not how it works. Yeah. Like it's it's mm-hmm. the fact that she sent it to one person. And that person has violated her trust and her privacy. As we're talking about it, it occurs to me in the exception that you've taken to this term revenge porn, that that term is entirely male centric, right? Like the term revenge refers to the action that the man has taken and like his agency in doing so. And the word porn in this context refers to assumedly a heterosexual male enjoyment that would derive from that violation. So like, that's another reason to take exception to the term itself. Yeah, that's a great point that it's basically a term that was coined by the, you know, the people who were by the patriarchy for the patriarchy. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think it's really kind of interesting to think about this in terms of how we give advice to people about this. I'm always, I always get very, very allergic when people are like telling young folks like, oh, be careful, like what, what pictures you take, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, no, I mean, come on. Let's say like someone takes your phone and takes a picture from it. Like, or let's say this was a, in your wallet, right? Like surely the problem is with the person who takes a picture from your wallet right. and puts it on the internet, um, not right. with you having had that picture in your wallet, right? Yeah. And there's something kind of amazing that part of this culture has talked itself into a position where that very obvious truth is like completely lost. And it's like, oh, well, the mistake clearly was the picture. It's like, nope, the the, no, the theft was the exactly. problem. Yeah, Exactly. Especially when it's something that has become such a normal part of living in today's society, yeah. right? Where we communicate mm-hmm. over our cell phones and mm-hmm. through videos and text messages. And yeah. let's just think during the pandemic, how much do you think that, you know, nude photos yeah. have increased in oh my God, yeah. during this time? Oh my right? God. Like, yeah. um, so to, to pretend like that's not the case and stand on the, oh, she should know better is that's just, right. that's just another form of victim blaming. Yeah. Of course. And penalizing youth yep. and not being able to live together and yep. having complicated lives, having, yeah. you know, non-monogamous relationships, right? All these things in a pandemic situation require some technological creativity, all of which is vulnerable. Yeah. yeah and that we should be allowed to do without fear of being yeah. exposed to yeah. the entire world. And I think when people say, what do we need to do about this? Mm. It's just like saying that the girl who's walking down the street shouldn't have been wearing the clothes. She was asking for it or whatever. Um, And I think that that's, you know, that's a, that's a cultural thing that we have to, uh, we really have to flip the script on. And, you know, in some ways we're starting to, but those, those old tropes are still very prevalent and you certainly see it in the case of cyber exploitation. Totally. I think your book, She Will Rise makes that point really deftly that this is exactly that narrative of like her skirt was too short. She was asking for it just like dressed up for the digital era. And another one of my favorite parts of your book was how willing you were to go into just like the complexities of how nobody is all good or all bad, really. And since your grandpa already came up in this discussion, I would love to hear in your words to hear you talk about your process of discovery with your grandpa, who passed in 2011, but even after his death. So my grandfather was, for those who haven't read the book yet, he was my hero. He was my idol. He was a, a huge father figure for me. And I spent more time as a child with him than probably any other adult at a single point because my parents were working and he watched me and my sister. And I think I really kind of grew into the person that I am in large part because of his influence. And it always, that's always been the case, but I learned after, after he died that, you know, he was abusive towards my grandmother. And that was, you know, something that I would have totally denied previously that I just would have Mm. not believed was possible and that you even feel your kind of natural instinct to try to be like, he must not have meant that, or maybe she, you know, misunderstood, or maybe she's exaggerating or when you love somebody or you respect somebody, or you don't want it to be the case, then your mind 
begins to do these like mental gymnastics very quickly, very quickly. So my process was really kind of trying to sit with both. And this is hard to even articulate in a way that doesn't sound like it's excusing that kind of behavior. But it's to say that like we, myself included, we do bad things sometimes. And what our responsibility is, is to, to take accountability for that, to learn from it, to not repeat our mistakes. But you know, that, that doesn't necessarily make us bad people right. fully. And, and where that line is drawn is, is really a personal kind of piece of discovery for every single individual. Totally. And even just the way you just framed that is so striking to me in so many ways. I mean, here's a man who like took on childcare for his granddaughters, right? Like took on teaching them about Greek myth, the way you write about in your book and like teaching you to about being feminist yes. about, you know, yes. it's like he put you through yeah. like feminist training camp, right? Like it was yeah. like baby yeah. feminist yeah. training totally. camp. And these other yep. things were true about him too. And like all of yep. those, that's a really hard both and to live with, but all of us live with those. And I think because I was learning this at the same time that I was really struggling with my own. And honestly, this is a big part of why I resigned was because, you know, the Me Too piece, you know, the, the Me Too explosion, I guess, with Harvey Weinstein had taken place in late 2017. Like, right. That was, I think it was, De- was it December of 2017. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the relationship that I was in with the woman who was working on my campaign Mm -hmm. had started prior to that and had started when the campaign was, it didn't even feel like we were working. You know, it was, it was this crazy grassroots thing and that's not to justify it. But I also was like, I've been such a staunch advocate for the Me Too movement. Somebody who's saying that, you know, that I get these power dynamics and that these aren't okay. And I guess it was hard for me to say, well, where does my own situation fall on this spectrum? And what are the wrongs that I committed? And how do I atone for them? And figuring out whether you're a bad person or how do you reconcile what you believe in and what you might have done with who you are? I feel like a lot of profiles of the book and I mean, the book itself kind of acknowledges that you put it out fairly quickly and that you sort of did a debrief kind of almost immediately. And I I was kind of thinking about how both its tone of self-interrogation and the way things get contextualized in larger framework, it felt to me like you were trying to avoid a certain kind of Me Too narrative that we've all become familiar with as well, which is sort of with people like Louis C.K. or whatever, right? Like the, the person who withdraws from public life and then sort of slinks back, hoping that things have been forgotten. And I feel like there's something kind of brave about putting this book out so early to say like- Super fucking brave, yeah. To say like, well, this is in the moment, right? This is my debrief, my decompression, as this is still kind of spooling, as opposed to kind of banking on on amnesia to sort of say like, no, like let's do this while while still kind of raw, right? Mm. Was that part of the idea or do you think that you'll write another book? I just didn't feel right to disappear. It felt like it was giving in. I felt so conflicted over the decision to resign or not as it was. And especially after, right. you know, we lost that seat back to Republicans. I really mm-hmm. wasn't sure if I made the right call or not. And I'm still not. I don't know if there is a right or wrong yeah. decision to, yeah. to be made. And 
it's the one that I made. And I guess when I, you know, when I decided to write the book quickly, partly was me saying, I'm not going to go away and I'm going to figure out a way to kind of fold this into my life story, knowing that this is part of my life story, but it's, I'm not going to let it define my entire life. And I think the book was kind of stage one of really trying to, you know, to take that piece of it, know that it's, you know, a big part of my history and it's what I'm going to be known for, for a while. I can't let that be what I'm known for forever. I don't quite know how to formulate this question. So I hope you'll just bear with me a little bit. Your book made me think of something every single woman I've ever talked to who has escaped an abusive relationship, which as you detail in the book is an incredibly complicated and fraught and frankly dangerous process. You know, like anybody who works in domestic violence knows that the most dangerous time for a person in an abusive relationship is at the time that they're leaving, right? Which is exactly what played out for you. There's so much of your story that hues very closely to how we understand domestic violence to function. So every single woman I've ever talked to who has gotten out of an abusive relationship has said some version of the same phrase to me, which is, I didn't think I was one of those women, you know, I want to put that in like the biggest scare quotes possible because like there is no those women, you know, is that something you felt? What have you learned about that sentiment since then? Like what kind of response do you have there? The thing that I've learned both about myself, but about women who are in abusive relationships in general, part of how we deny that we're in an abusive relationship is because we don't want to see ourselves as one of those quote, those women who allow themselves to be, who again, quote, allow themselves to be in in abusive relationships. (laughs) And I think, you know, that's internalized misogyny too, right? That it's the woman's fault. If he's so bad, why don't you just leave? And there's so many reasons that we don't just leave, including deep psychological manipulation and damage that's Mm -hmm. been done. Over a period of years, there's financial reasons, there's a sense of responsibility and obligation to family, to pets, to whatever it might be. And there's real fear of safety and whether that's, you know, your own physical safety or if it's the safety of your career, you know, when somebody's saying that they're going to ruin you or safety of your friends, family, Mm -hmm. it's it's just one of those things. But by saying, I don't want to be one of those women, or I couldn't possibly be one of those women because I'm so, you know, I'm strong, I'm independent, I'm whatever, then it often closes our eyes to realize that we are being victims of abuse and that Mm -hmm. perpetuates it longer Mm -hmm. and longer. And so I guess, you know, part of me talking about it and my mom was one who encouraged me to share my story too, because she said that, Mm. you know, for other women or girls who are in these kinds of relationships, I can be a example of how it can happen to anybody. It can happen to even women that we see in the highest positions of power. Yeah, Katie, I mean, that's really powerful to hear you talk about. And I guess what I was just thinking is, as I was reading your book, I had kind of a creeping sensation of being like, oh, I can totally see the route to manipulating this woman who cares so deeply about animals, about her community, about her family, about public service, like the way to control a person like that would be to threaten not just that woman, but those things that she cares about. And it's so clear that you are such a big hearted public servant who cares so much about those things. I just clenched for you as I was reading that. It was so easy in retrospect, obviously, everything in hindsight is so much easier to trace, but it, it was, it was really clear, like what the route to getting to you was, you know? Well, and somebody who knows you and who is, yes. you know, a narcissist or an abuser or whatever, yes. they find your weaknesses, right? They find the yes. things that are your triggers and where you're lacking the confidence, what your subtle insecurities are. They know exactly what to push and when and how you're going to be the most vulnerable and how they kind of position themselves as the only sort of comfort that mm. you can get. 
it's really insidious and it can be looking back on it. You just find yourself so many times being like, how did I not see that sooner? Mm -hmm. Why didn't I realize Mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. You have to heal from that too. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard the acronym DARVO? Okay. So this is what I don't want to like, you know, psycho profile your ex too much. But when I read the account of how, you know, he had threatened to ruin you and then claimed that he had been hacked, um, even though he was the only plausible source for all of this material, the acronym stands for deny attack, reverse victim and offender. And it's like known among domestic violence circles because this is a very common narcissistic manipulation, abusive tactic. And I was like, there it is, Darvo. There it is. Okay. I'll remember that now. Yeah, it also sorry. sounds awfully like Donald Trump. What if Darvo ran for president? That is why I've thought about it so often in the last four <laughs> years. It's like I'm, I mean, oh, truly, God. like every I've been on Twitter so much in the last couple of years. Like yeah. every time something like that comes up, I'm like, "There's Darvo again." Yeah, there it geez. is. One of the things that this makes me think about is the way in which the whole, you know, your resignation in some way brought out the basic discomfort that I think a lot of America had with Me Too. And that I think my own personal sort of sense behind those somewhat weird fixation now around like sex trafficking, like with Mm. QAnon and all that stuff. I think those actually come from the same thing, which is America seems to have a, or some parts of America seem to have a real discomfort with people who are being victimized in certain ways while also wielding a great deal of self-confidence and power. Right. And I think your book gets at the point that like these two things are not incompatible. Right. 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 You can be fully in control of beyond most people's imagining of your life yeah. and yet be a victim in others. Yeah. And I do think that that's one of the ways in which I think Me Too has sort of made clear that America is still not fully mm. sort of come to terms with that, you know, that is a no. propensity to like your victims total. There's right. nothing, there's nothing. You want a pure victim, yeah, right? Exactly. You want somebody who's a nice, clean. Well, not just clean, but know. also has no power mm-hmm. to yeah. over no the situation, either. right? And the fact is, right. that's very few of us. The fact is we all have yeah. some agency. The problem is if you can't assert it or if you're being gaslit into not asserting it, who cares, yeah. right? I mean, like it's just as bad, yeah. right? Yeah, and I think the other thing, the bit of discomfort comes from, at least it's certainly one that I still struggle with, is like the gradations, right? You know, there are some situations like Harvey Weinstein that we see, there's no question how horrible this is. Right. And then, you know, you've sort of got the other end where it's like, well, I don't know. We know that that's not right, but also what's the right level of atonement or what does it take to get forgiveness and to be able to move past that? I still feel this way is that the Me Too movement was specifically in response to the patriarchy and in response to men victimizing women. In my own head, I didn't even see it on the same level. But here I am, you know, listed in the Wikipedia page of politicians who've been taken down in the Me Too era. And like... God, I haven't even thought about that. That just fucking sucks. So... Yeah, that's so fucking sad. Super sexualized and sensationalized. Yeah, lesbians? Are you yeah. kidding? Like, uh, like. Uh, if I weren't yeah, young, whatever. I have decent thoughts. looking, and it weren't a relationship with a woman, mm-hmm. then like, ugh, it'd be a totally different situation. Ugh. At the same time, I, I guess I would say I think that lesbian women in America struggle with the fact that often enough it's not seen as counting the power dynamics. Uh, yeah, yeah, especially in terms of power dynamics and violence. Now, that's obviously that's totally different from your situation completely, but there could have been a way this could have all been yeah. sort of straight washed. I mean, yeah. like 20 years ago, right? Would have been straight washed yeah. and become into like basically a Jay Leno monologue if he still monologued or whatever. That's the one yeah. part of this that I think is kind of fortunate. Right. Yeah, and it's good that we're having that conversation, right? But it is still Absolutely. one that is clearly we're in the early stages of and it gives us a great deal of responsibility yeah, yeah. in how we're handling these things. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, in all seriousness, as a bisexual woman married to a man, I have truly appreciated the way you have brought bisexuality into the public conversation and continue to do so. Well, and I'm really proud of it because just yesterday, Andrew Gillum yes. came out as, yes. as bi. He asked for my advice before he was doing it. And so I know that like, there's at least a part of it that was my own visibility and in that space made him feel like he was able to that's come right forward yeah too. and we have a unique bond because we've got these very sure <laughs> very similar yeah. i don't know horrible experiences but i think we're gonna see more of it and i told him that especially as a man of color a man in general but a man of color like that's yeah. really brave that's and huge you know i'm holding him and and his wife in my heart yeah absolutely what was the first thing you told him he needed to know mm. i said that you know don't read any of the comments stay away from it as much as you can like just know that yeah. you know you don't you don't need to there's no good that can come from that so no 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 one benefits god i do hope that andrew gillen was not reading the comments until yesterday well, because... yeah that's true but i but like I once once it comes out too i mean just whatever whatever true. it is it's just yeah it's yeah not. and i guess you do have in your position or in his a staff that informs you of what's being said about you people like laura and me we can just turn off our internet and be like i'll just pretend <laughs> yeah. nothing's happening whereas like yeah, if you have no, like it's... someone is like whose job it is to be like oh by the way you know but it's also like a compulsion you you sort of can't help yourself really? sometimes and i know that that yeah. was the case when it was happening to me in the first place because you're looking for a reassurance too right you're looking for people the people right, who are coming right. to your defense but you also find the terrible mm. stuff the people coming to my defense outweighed the terrible stuff, but it sticks with you. And I told him too, you know, we talked again afterwards and he's, you know, he said that his hope is just that over time, then you get more and more desensitized to it. And I said, you do, but you also, there's sometimes when you'll see something that just sticks for some reason. And it just like, it just eats away at you for a little bit and you don't quite know why no. or what it is, but, but just to be aware of that, just to know that it's going to happen. It's, it's human. And I also told him, I was like, <laughs> therapy is highly recommended. <laughs> so, right. um, you know, it's trauma, right? It doesn't matter how powerful you are, how high profile you've been, how successful you've been. Yeah. Like, this yeah. is, it's trauma. Oh, there's so many things I could ask. Are there particular types or modes of therapy that you have found especially effective in treating trauma with your personal experience? So I have, I've had the same therapist since I was at an early point in the campaign. And she kind of adjusts it based on how often I'm able to see her and mm -hmm. you know, she's in California. And so she's been really helpful in terms of a lot of these past few years have been about survival and not, you know, not necessarily that it's helpful to like really dig into the trauma work. Right. So now that, that some time has passed, it's like, okay, we'll do deeper trauma work when we can do a few sessions in a row. But otherwise sometimes it's like, a specific issue, you know, my brother died mm -hmm. and a lot of it can be self-directed on like, you know, what thing we're focusing on and it requires you to do a lot of your own work too, because you mm -hmm. can't talk to a therapist 24 hours a day. There's a lot of hours in the day. Yeah. <laughs> I know that. Can I tell you a book that your book reminded me of yeah. that if you haven't read, I think you might enjoy yeah. Have you heard of an author named Nora McInerney? She lives in Minnesota. Uh-uh. So she's kind of a grief expert, and she wrote a memoir called Laughing is Okay, Crying is Cool Too, which is largely about losing her husband, her father, and her second pregnancy in the same year. Yeah. She's maybe the only person I've ever read who, who comes close to, like, your trauma count for a single year. <laughs> for a single um, year, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's also a book that was written, like, in the six months right after. I feel like you might enjoy a Google and a library visit for her. Yeah. Your book did a 
lot of great things really well. And one of them was describing how like none of these things, even though we can feel so alone when we're confronting them, none of these things are ever individual issues and none of us are ever alone. And I noticed that you did a really poignant job sharing some stories that I assume you must have had to get permission to use, you know, from stuff that like your sister has been through, your grandma has been through and your mom has been through. Like, can you tell us a little bit about the process of having those conversations with your relatives? Yeah. I mean, I didn't anticipate how much I used my grandma's story throughout the book, Mm -hmm. right? Like I didn't Mm -hmm. expect there to be so many parallels. And, and I think you know, the intergenerational nature of this and how we have struggled with these kinds of challenges and the, you know, the barriers that women face and the trauma that women face. This is intergenerational trauma. It's shared experiences and it affects each woman as they pass their experiences Mm -hmm. on to the next. And I don't know, I still haven't Mm -hmm. totally wrapped my head around it, but I just, you know, I know that the interconnectedness of it is significant. You know, it's so pervasive and it means that we've got so far to go. And when you look at how how little truly has changed since what has happened to my grandma Mm -hmm. is the exact same that happened to my sister. And we have such a long way to go. So true. I think I noticed in the uh, New York Times profile that you had the Year of Magical Thinking on the bookshelf. Oh my God, I clocked that too. I also saw Ada Limon. Honestly, yes. I was thinking that is the other book I could think yes. of where just like... When you said that about... Uh, yeah, that was a very useful book for me to read. Yep. For sure. <laughs> what was the process of the actual... I mean, you, you described the writing process, but in terms of like your background as an English major, like how did you sort of prep yourself for, I'm guessing, a totally new style of writing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Some of it was kind of like a research mm-hmm. paper, right? Like I had my thesis and I was able to kind of formulate in my head the way that the, the case that I wanted to make in terms of, you know, these are the issues that we're facing and these are how we solve them. But mm-hmm. the personal narrative component of it, like I really just started writing and, and I, I've done that for a long time, like throughout the course of my time in Congress and, and even before I've written a lot that's just stream of consciousness, like how I feel about things. And I think that that's kind of the style mm-hmm. that I was able to to adapt from. There are definitely certain influences on my writing and Joan Didion is <laughs> definitely one of them. Yeah, I wanted to ask about influences. What other authors do you love or did you think about as you were writing this book? Well, she's one that I've just read a ton of over the last year. I feel like she's really resonated with me. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. But like Margaret Atwood was a big one. Uh, I don't think that this is necessarily the book that reflects that so much. What else did I have on my uh, my bookshelf in, in, in that one? Yeah. I mean, if you can remember anything that happened a year ago at this I point, I would yeah. be impressed because I can't remember things that happened seven minutes ago. Yeah. I'm like, I know I've read a bunch of stuff. I'm, I'm reading an actually a random Max Brooks. Nice. Thing about you got Sasquatch Adrian's right attention now. there. Yeah. So, that's <laughs> Was this Crater Lake inspired yeah, yeah. as well? Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. <laughs> that's enough to put Sasquatch thoughts in your mind. Yeah, exactly. The Didion comparison to me is interesting because on the one hand, it kind of forces itself on you as just kind of a model. At the same time, your book is so different. On the one hand, it is about this kind of depressing sameness of experience, how certain things that one might think could have been left behind totally have not been and intergenerationally have been reproduced, in fact. But at the same time, I looked at some of the reviews and a lot of them sort of called like Twitter language and whatever. And I was like, no, this is just like there's something here where you're finding a new way to give voice to these problems. And I just love the fact how it doesn't sound like Joan Didion, to be honest, which is not nothing against the year of magical thinking, which is lovely. Yeah, this is a craft choice. Yeah. Did you make any tonal adjustments? Yeah, I mean, I had to write like myself and how I speak. That Mm -hmm. was a very conscious decision because I know... Mm -hmm. 
I really wanted people to feel like they were talking with me when right. they're reading it. And especially when I was, you know, thinking about the audience being younger women, younger women who I want to be able to relate their experiences to, especially when they've had these mm -hmm. experiences that they felt like they can't share with other people or that they felt isolated because of, I felt like it was important to be able to do it that right. way. And, you know, the loftier your language and the more sort of separated from it you are, I feel like that takes it away from it. And that doesn't mean that, you know, I wouldn't want to at some point try to have a, I don't know, artsy <laughs> narrative style. Mm -hmm. I mean, that might be something I play around with at some point, but I really wanted this one to be kind of in my own words, in my own tone of just how I talk about things, including using mm -hmm. humor, because humor has been a huge coping mechanism for me. For us all, I think. <laughs> I don't want to let you go without hearing in your words, you talk about her time and its current priorities and how our listeners can get involved. Sure. So her time is the political action committee I started with basically the re-election funds that I had already compiled and that we're raising money into now. And it's dedicated to helping women, especially to the extent possible, young women and women of color mm -hmm. to gain power and to get elected positions in this country. It started out, my plan was to really focus on Congress, but the level of diversity that is even of people who are running for Congress is really not there, even among women. So I decided to expand to mm. other positions as well so that we could get more diversity and start kind of building up a slate of, the pipeline. Yeah, the pipeline. Exactly. So we've got some amazing candidates. We're also, I think what separates us from a lot of organizations is that I really think it's important for some organizations to go in early, to build credibility for candidates and be willing to take risks, knowing that, you know, we're putting in this money and it may not mm -hmm. be an investment in that person winning this cycle, but we're investing in the person as a whole and knowing that, you know, if they don't win for Congress this time, that might mean that they run for state legislature next time and they do win. So right. um, either right. way, we think it's important. And we've lost, you know, some of our candidates have lost, but come so close. Um, they've moved the needle in some capacity. I'm really proud of Candace Valenzuela, who is running in Texas. And we were one of her early supporters and a whole bunch of other organizations have come in and are supporting her now. And it looks like she's, she might be able to pull off flipping this district from red to blue. And oh, we've got some others crossed. that are really really exciting. So, so yeah, then once the selection cycle is over, then it's going to be about pushing for these issues and pushing for the legislative solutions I talk about in the book. And, and then it kind of all starts again. So I'm excited. People can go to her-time.com and see how you can get involved. Katie Hill still has a plan. She can't keep her down folks. Um, <laughs> Katie, I guess I just want to say like, thank you for your service to our country and to feminism. Thank, thank you, you for everything you've done. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It is produced by Laura Good and edited by Megan Kalfas and Isabella Tilly. All our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a building named for a woman that none of us have seen recently, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University. And we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues there, Cynthia Newberry, Alison Dahl-Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, Shivani Mehta, and Sarah Mersney. The Feminist Present is also co-sponsored by The Changing Human Experience, producing deep ideas for a better world by supporting Stanford research in the humanities and social sciences. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We're at Feminist Present on both platforms. And if you want to chat feminism, Miss Rona, or anything else, go ahead and write us an email at feministpresent at gmail.com. We'd appreciate it so much if you'd leave us a review, preferably five stars on iTunes or another platform to help other folks join our discussion. Mm -hmm.